The Old Testament reading is Job chapter 19, verses 23 through 27, and this is the word of the Lord. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. And now let's turn to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. For those who are visiting today, we are currently working our way uh, through Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, week by week. And this morning we are at chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, several of you in our congregation are golfers, so I know that this observation will will resonate with you. Uh, But I've never met a golfer uh, who didn't want to improve his game. Uh, No golfer uh, has ever said to me, you know, I'm content with just, you know, to keep hitting the ball off into the woods and to missing all my putts. I'm, I'm really satisfied with where my game is now. Now, every golfer I've ever known uh, wants to improve. And so uh, they buy new clubs. Uh, they watch uh, videos on YouTube. Uh, they buy new clubs. Uh, they uh, take lessons uh, from a pro. Uh, they buy more clubs. And the hope is that uh, they will get better. And uh, you know what I'm talking about uh, if you golf. If you're a golfer, you naturally want to be a better golfer. In the same way, if you're a Christian, you naturally want to be a better Christian. Or at least you ought to want to be a better Christian. You want to overcome the habits and the patterns of sin that, that seem to cling to you. Uh, you want to grow in your obedience Uh, to the commandments of God that he gives us in his word. Uh, You want to make progress in in true holiness and righteousness and your devotion uh, to God and your worship of God. You want to to grow in in your love for others. Uh, As a Christian, uh, God has put that desire upon your heart to become more like Jesus. You want to be more like Jesus than you are right now. And so the question you ask yourself is this, what must I do to become a better Christian? What must I do to grow in my faithfulness to Christ? And the answer is, you start by not doing anything. Rather, you start by thinking. You start by thinking. The battle begins in your mind. Uh, The beginning or the foundation of growing as a believer in Jesus Christ is 
knowing and understanding the truth about you as one who belongs to Jesus. And what is true about you as a Christian is this, that by faith in Jesus Christ, you have died. You have died to sin. And by faith in Christ, you have been raised. You have been raised from death to life. And this is the teaching that the Apostle Paul gives us here in chapter 6 of Romans. Uh, the, The concern of the Apostle here is the life that we are called to live as Christians, how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to think, how how we are to speak as those who belong to Christ, as those who have been saved by the grace of God. How are we to live? That is Paul's concern here. Or we can put it in more theological terms. So far in uh, Paul's letter to to the Romans, he has been concerned with our justification. That is, how is it that we are made right with God? But now in chapter 6, Paul focuses on sanctification. That is, how we, as redeemed sinners, can live lives pleasing to God. And rather than giving us a specific and detailed list of commandments, and we'll, we'll see more specific and detailed commandments as we go on through Romans, but in this chapter, what Paul says is that, again, the beginning, the foundation of the Christian life, of living the Christian life, is that we must believe and understand that we are united to Christ in His death and resurrection. We must absorb this truth into our minds and into our hearts. And this is the key to your growing as a Christian. Knowing that you are in Christ. Understanding what it means that you are in Christ. United to Him is the key to your growing into the image of Christ. In our passage this morning, in verses 1-5, through Paul will... Uh, tell us in general terms uh, what this means, our union with Christ, that we have died with him and have been raised up with him. And then he goes on in chapter 6 to uh, speak in more uh, specific terms uh, of what this truth means for us as believers. Uh, So this morning, though, we're going to focus on uh, verses 1 through 5, and we'll focus on uh, these two fundamental truths uh, that uh, we read here in these verses. And these will be our two points uh, this morning. First, in Christ, you have died to sin. So first, in Christ, you have died to sin. And then second, in Christ, you have been raised up to new life. So first of all, in Christ, you have died to sin. As you know, this coming Tuesday, the day after tomorrow, is uh, Reformation Day. This is the day that we commemorate Uh, The beginning of the great uh, Protestant Reformation that began on October 31st, um, 1517. And to celebrate Reformation Day, uh, several of us uh, met uh, last Wednesday and we watched a movie about the the life of Martin Luther. And uh, it was a fantastic movie. I can heartily commend it to you, but I was a little disappointed that the movie didn't uh, focus more clearly... Uh, more pointedly, on what was uh, the key discovery that Luther made, uh, the discovery that not only changed his life, but would really change the course of the history of the church. And that discovery, or better, we we should call it a rediscovery, uh, was nothing other than uh, the gospel of God's free grace. Luther really rediscovered uh, the the graciousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
as he studied and meditated on Scripture, he came to see that we are justified by God, that is, we are made right with God on the basis of an imputed righteousness that comes to us uh, from God. It comes to us from Christ. It is his righteousness. And so he came to see that we are made right with God. Our sins are forgiven by God. We are considered righteous before God, not on the basis of anything that we do, not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of this free gift of righteousness that comes from God to us through Christ and apart from any good works that we ourselves do. And in fact, it was the book of Romans that Luther was studying and reading and meditating upon that led him to this wonderful rediscovery of the sheer grace of God in the gospel. And when Luther came to understand this message of Romans, that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, by faith alone in him, and that the righteousness of God is not a righteousness that condemns us if we belong to Christ, but it is a righteousness that God gives to us as a free gift, so that by that righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, we might be justified. But when Luther, when he came to see this, when he understood this grace of God, this, this free uh, salvation by faith in Christ, he said it was like he was altogether born again and that he entered into paradise through open gates. And this was the message that Luther proclaimed, that he preached. Salvation by faith alone, trusting in Christ alone, on the basis of Christ's merits, his righteousness. And as Luther preached that message, that message in turn uh, caused countless other souls to be born again and to enter into paradise through open gates. But not everybody received Luther's gospel with joy. Specifically, the established church, the Roman Catholic Church, rejected his message vehemently. Uh, Catholics raised against the, the gospel that Luther preached and that the Protestants preached. They raised this objection uh, to this gospel message. They said, if you preach this message, if you preach the message that a sinner can be made right with God forever solely on the basis of his trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and apart from any works that he contributes, what are you going to do but to encourage people to go on sinning? Because if people think that they are justified by faith in Christ alone, apart from works, they will have no motive, no incentive to, uh, to stop sinning or to avoid sin or to pursue holiness. And so they said that this message of God's free grace apart from works will only lead to ungodliness, to immor immorality. They said, in effect, this is no gospel of salvation, but this is only a license to sin. But the very fact that this objection was raised against Luther and the gospel that he proclaimed was a good sign that the gospel that Luther preached really was the gospel that Paul preached and the gospel that the Bible gives us. Because Paul also met with this very same objection to the gospel he preached. Just like Luther, when Paul proclaimed the graciousness of God in the gospel of Christ, when he proclaimed God's free grace to sinners in Christ, he too was accused of giving people an incentive to sin, of unleashing a, a sin and wickedness in those who would embrace this message. Let's see how that, how that happened. In the last two verses of chapter 5, uh, Paul wrote this. In verse 20, he said, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, 
grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here is a glorious truth that the Apostle Paul set before his, his, his readers, that the scripture set before us. And that is this, that even though we as sinners, even though when we were confronted with the law of God, we responded by increasing our sin, by increasing lawlessness, by increasing wickedness. Despite that fact, the grace of God was still more abundant towards us. Even when our sin increased in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God abounded all the more towards us. And so through the saving work of Jesus Christ, God caused his grace to sinners to be magnified in the salvation of sinners such as us. So that was, that was the gospel that Paul preached. And now in verse 1 of chapter 6, our passage, uh, Paul raises the very objection to the truth that no doubt he heard over and over again as he proclaimed Christ. His opponents heard this message, and this is what they said. Paul is essentially quoting them in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You could hear the opponents of Paul uh, telling him, Paul, if what you say is true in your gospel, if what you say is correct, that the, that the more that the sin of sinners increased, the more abundantly did the grace of God abound towards sinners. Then why don't we just all Go on sinning more and more so that we can make God's grace appear to be all the more greater. Paul, your message does nothing to, to discourage sin. In fact, it only gives a reason for people to go on sinning. And what was Paul's response to this idea that we should, that we should go on sinning? That, should we, that we ought to continue to sin so that God's grace may abound? He says in verse 2, by no means, by no means. Uh, this was the phrase, and we've encountered this before already in Romans, but this was the phrase that Paul used when he felt such an abhorrence to an idea that was so objectionable to him that he could only recoil and whore from it by no means. Uh, the King James uh, Version uh, captures better uh, the force, the strength of the saying, God forbid, God forbid. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. May it never be. And then in verse 2, Paul tells us why it is unthinkable, unthinkable, an absurdity that anyone who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ should continue in sin. He says in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And so what Paul is saying here is that a person who has come to faith in Christ, he, he, he does not just have a, a different attitude towards sin. It's not that he has just come to see that sin is a very bad thing. Nor is it the case that a person who has come to faith in Jesus Christ has merely been given a new heart so that he hates the sin that he once embraced. Both of those things are true. But what Paul is saying here is much more radical, much more profound than that. What he is saying is this. The one who has come to Christ, he has died to sin. He is dead to sin. And if you, are, if, if you have died to something, how can you possibly live in it? Well, you can't. In verse 3, Paul reminds the Christians in Rome of something that they surely already knew, but that they needed to be reminded of again. 
And so he says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, for the Christian, his baptism or her baptism is a baptism into Christ Jesus and into his death. Now let's not get sidetracked here. Paul is not concerned in these verses to teach us uh, the details of how we are to administer the sacrament of baptism. Paul isn't teaching us here in this passage that baptism must be by total immersion because it only in that way does it symbolize our, our dying with Christ and being buried with Christ. If we want to know uh, scripturally how to or in what ways we may apply uh, the waters of baptism in that sacrament, we go to other scriptures, not this one. But what Paul is concerned with here is to say that if you have saving faith in Christ, if you belong to Christ by faith and assuming that you have also been baptized, your baptism then is a sign and seal of your being engrafted into or united with, joined with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. Again, it is by faith alone that you are united to Christ, but that reality that you are united to Christ, it is signified, it is shown forth in your baptism, this spiritual reality that you have died with Jesus when he died on the cross. And in verse 4, Paul says that your baptism not only signifies your death with Christ, but it also signifies the fact that you have been buried with him. Uh, verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Well, why does Paul mention burial? Isn't it somewhat of a given that if a person dies, he is buried? Well, the reason Paul mentions a burial is because uh, just as with, with Jesus, his, his burial was the confirmation, the proof, as it were, uh, that his death was truly a true death that he died. Uh, so in the same way, uh, being buried with Christ is a confirmation, a proof that we have truly, truly died uh, with Jesus. And so to be baptized into Christ Jesus means to be baptized into his death and burial, uh, which means to have died the death that Jesus died, which means uh, to have died to sin. Well, so far, so good. But let's dig a little deeper. What does it mean exactly? What does that mean that you and I have died to sin? Well, one thing it does not mean, it does not mean that you and I as Christians no longer struggle with sin or that there is no longer sin within us. Paul is not saying that. Nor does it mean that there is not uh, within uh, that, that, as I said, that remaining corruption that is still within us. In fact, as you are hearing these verses, as you hear uh, the scripture tell you, you have died to sin. You might be thinking to yourself, Pastor, I don't feel, I don't feel that way. I don't feel like I have died to sin. So often I'm impatient with my kids. You might be thinking to yourself, I get jealous of other people who have more money than me. I know that's a sin. You might think to yourself, the other day I went to a website that I should not have gone to. How can I be dead to sin? How can I be dead to sin when I so often commit sin? When I'm so often tempted to sin? When I struggle with it? Well, this passage isn't saying that as a Christian you no longer struggle with sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself in the very next chapter, in chapter 7, um, he will tell us just how intense 
his own struggle with sin was as a believer in Christ. He says in chapter 7, verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I know that that resonates with every single one of us because even though we have been redeemed by the grace of God, even though we know the good that we want to do, we find ourselves doing the very opposite. The evil that we would not do, we do as Christians. And so sin still indwells in us. We wrestle with it. And we will wrestle with sin until the day we die. And so Paul is not saying that to be dead to sin means you have 100% overcome sin in this life. But what he is saying is this, that as a Christian, you are no longer under the dominion of sin. You are no longer under the control or the power of sin. As a believer, sin is no longer your master. You are no longer a slave to sin. He goes on in verse 6 to say, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And isn't there a world of difference, a world of difference between the Christian who fights against the sin that he hates? And sometimes, yes, he fails. There's a difference between the Christian and the unbeliever who walks in the sin that he not only accepts, but truly he loves. It's the difference between life and death. Though the Christian may sin, he is dead to the reigning power of sin. He is alive to God, but the unbeliever, he is dead to God. And he is alive to sin, which means he is helplessly under the tyranny, the power, the control of sin. Sin is his master. He is a slave. And that's what Paul means when he, when he refers in verse 2 to, to living in sin. What that means is that a person who is living in sin is under the power, the control of sin. He is enslaved to it. And as a Christian, that cannot be true because we have died to the power of sin over us. And it's very providential that as we have been going through the book of Romans that today happened to be the day that we uh, witnessed uh, this, the, the baptism of, of Thomas and Leah. Uh, it's very fitting because this passage uh, tells us what our baptism teaches us, reminds us of. And that is that as a believer in Christ, your baptism is God's confirmation to you of this very truth that you are no longer under the tyranny of sin. Rather, you have been purchased by Christ. You belong to another master. Your master is Christ, and he is a gracious, a merciful, a loving Lord. But our baptism confirms these truths to us. And even as we witness the baptism of, of others, as we did today, we ought to think back on our own baptism and, and, and remind ourselves that God has been gracious to us. He has delivered us from, from the dominion of sin. He has brought us to Christ. Uh, Martin Luther, in his large catechism, he says that we should look to our baptism when our conscience oppresses us because of our sins. Have you ever felt that way? You're, you're, you're wrestling with sin, and there are times when you fail, and your conscience convicts you, oppresses you. Well, what was Luther's answer to that? His answer was this from the large catechism. He said, but I am baptized. 
And if I have been baptized, I have the promise that I shall be saved and have eternal life, both in body and soul. Now, again, it's not baptism itself that saves you. But as one who has been saved by faith in Christ, your baptism, just as it did with Luther, it can assure you that you are free from the dominion of sin forever. That just as Jesus Christ died upon the cross, just as truly, just as really, as he took your sin on the cross and paid the penalty of it, so truly you have died to the reigning power of sin over you. And your baptism assures you of that. But I am baptized. And so you have died with Christ as a Christian. You have died to the power of sin. And just as Jesus was raised from death to life, so you too have been raised to to new life. And this is our second point. Paul says in verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, uh, by the glory of the Father, that refers to the power of God, the power of the Father, uh, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 5, um, what, he says explicitly in verse 5 what is implicit in verse 4, that is in our union with Christ, we are not only united with him in his death, but also in his resurrection. So he says in verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, the, the ultimate hope that we have as Christians, as, as we look to the future, Uh, The ultimate hope that God gives us is that one day uh, we too will be raised bodily from death to life. Just as Jesus was raised from his grave, so too one day God will raise us from our graves. We We will be raised up in bodies that are immortal, incorruptible, that will live forever. We will live forever in a new heavens, a new earth, never to die again. And that is our hope, the resurrection to come. But... Paul is not talking about that resurrection in this passage. He's not talking about that future bodily resurrection. Rather, he is talking about this, that in Jesus Christ, we have already been resurrected. As a Christian, you have already been raised from death to life. It's a spiritual resurrection. And we know that he's talking about this because in verse 4 he says that this is in order that we might walk in newness of life. That is referring to this life. And so, as a believer in Christ, you have been resurrected with Christ to new life. You have been made alive to God and his righteousness. The Bible says you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And therefore, even now, even before that great day when our body shall be raised from death to life, you can walk in resurrection life by the power of the Spirit who lives within you. This is a a radical, profound truth that if only we would understand more and more that we are truly living in the new age and the age to come because we have been raised up with Jesus so that we can live lives that reflect the holiness, the righteousness of God. We do so by the power of the Spirit. And this is all by grace. This is all by grace. And it's ours by faith. If we've learned anything at all as we've been going through Romans, it is the centrality and the importance of the grace of God in our salvation. 
and of faith as the means by which we receive that grace. We are made right with God. We have seen through Romans when Paul deals with justification. We are made right with God. We are forgiven. We are declared righteous, not on the basis of what we do, but by trusting in Christ. So it is all by grace. It is all the grace of God. And now in this passage, as Paul is talking about living the Christian life, sanctification, growing in Christ likeness, everything still depends on the grace of God. And that grace is ours by faith, by faith, by trusting in Christ. I mean, how is it that we can walk in the newness of life according to these verses? Is it by willing within us the, the, uh, the determination uh, to live these new lives? No. We can only walk in the newness of life if we are raised up with Jesus in his resurrection. Well, how can we be raised up with Jesus in his resurrection? We can only be raised with him if we are united with him, and we are only united with him by faith. By faith. And so living the Christian life also is the fruit of the grace of God. It's all by God's grace. And it begins and it continues by faith as you trust in the Lord Jesus. And so the faith by which you are joined to Christ for your justification, that you may be right with God, is the same faith by which you are joined to Christ for your sanctification, that you might walk more and more in the righteousness of God. And so Jesus Christ is the one and only way for you not only to come into a right relationship with God, but to live a life pleasing to God. And since that is the case, that presses the question upon us today. And I want to ask you this question, is your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Christ today? Is he your only hope for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you leaning upon him, trusting in him for forgiveness, for eternal life? And Jesus is the only hope that you have to deliver you from the power of sin. Are you resting in Christ for your, to, be, to be delivered from the, the, the tyranny of sin over you? Only Jesus can save you from the guilt of sin and the power of sin. And if your hope is in Christ, then take these truths to heart that Paul is giving us. Know that these, these verses describe you. These verses describe you. You have truly died with Jesus. You have been raised up with him. Charles Wesley wrote these wonderful words about our, our participation in the resurrection of Christ, a great Easter hymn. Uh, Soar we now where Christ hath led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Hail the Lord of earth and heaven. Praise to thee by both be given. Thee we greet triumphant now. Hail the resurrection thou. The more that you are able to sing these words, from the heart, knowing that these words are true for you, made like him, like him I rise, mind the cross, the grave, the skies. The more that you can sing these words, the more you believe these words, that you are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection, the more the grace of God will be at work in you to, to make you what you already are in Christ that is dead to sin and alive to righteousness. So the Christian life then 
begins with this, with knowing, knowing who you are in Jesus, knowing what that means to belong to Christ. Let's pray.